do your vocal uh, exercises this morning. Me, 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 me. <laughs> me. Welcome to Archispeak, the podcast that talks about what it's like to work in the profession of architecture. All right, welcome to the show. Welcome back to the show. This is a second in maybe what we would consider sort of kind of a two-part series in experiencing architecture during a pandemic. <laughs> How do you do that? <laughs> through memories. Yeah, through memories and stories, right? I think that's a pretty yeah, powerful exactly. statement right there. Um, and and it was funny because, like, I guess during the pre-show, we were just talking about uh, how easy it is to talk about something when we're looking at something versus, like, my wife is, is the opposite. She just wants to talk about it. She doesn't want to look at – she doesn't want to wait. I think that's really what it is. She doesn't want to wait <laughs> for me to draw the thing. She just wants to – just get the words out. So So yeah, we're kind of – yeah quickly like looking up images that we've taken of the the places we're going to talk about today so that we can intelligently talk about them and i think that's just so funny how much of a dependency i oh, have wait, that's the disclaimer <laughs> well, we have to intelligently talk about yeah, them yeah if if i didn't have the photos it would just be stupid that's just me. yeah so so yeah there's just like a crazy dependency there on on the on the images i think that it's just because they they do bring up the memories though it's really just a a memory machine that's what photography is to me so that it's yeah, absolutely yeah so all right so the the idea behind this episode is that we were going to pick one of the buildings we talked about in the last episode because last episode was kind of a laundry list of buildings that we've experienced in the last three or four years and pretty exhaustive i mean not we didn't hit everything but there was a lot there it was a long episode so if you listen to that and made it all the way through that's that's pretty amazing and uh, <laughs> I think now what we're we're going to do is each pick one, and then we're going to talk about a shared experience, one that we've been to together. So do you want to go first and talk about your building that uh, neither um, – so so the, the ground rules here are, like, I haven't been to the building you're about to talk about, and you haven't been to the building I'm about to talk about, and then we're going to talk about the one that we've been to together. Right. Yeah, I can I can definitely start off with um and listening to the last show it probably might not surprise anyone but I am going to talk about the Glenstone Museum. Honestly, so it has been open now for just about 2 years, well at least the pavilion portion, which is the Thomas Pfeiffer addition to the original Glenstone Museum which the original museum gallery spaces were done by um, Charles Guathme was the architect, but it was Guathme Siegel and Associates who did the original buildings. And they're still used. They're still part of the thing, the, you know, the overall experience, which let, let's just talk about the, the way that you come into the museum. It's not just, you know, arriving in the museum and checking in and then um, going right into the, uh, the gallery spaces. You, you arrive at the Glenstone Museum, You which, you know, amazingly enough, for me at least, much like, I, I'm not sure which one you're going to talk about, but some of the ones that you, you know, have been on and one of the ones that, you know, we talked about last week, you live close to some of the ones that I still have yet to go to and, you know, are at the top of my bucket list uh, for architectural places to go to. And so I, I I don't know how some of those are experienced, but a lot of 
galleries you drive to the gallery or you take a the metro or you take a bus to them or you know are lucky enough to like live next to them and walk to them but they're they're just there you know and you go into them and you're kind of like immediately immersed into this the interesting thing that i find about the glenstone which is one of the reasons why it has become you know at the very top of my places list is it's it's a place it's an experience it you don't just go there to just immediately jump into the artwork it is a whole procession it is an experience it is the landscape you know it, it's it's getting there yeah that's really cool i mean i i was just thinking like one of the things i love to do is go rock climbing and you can go to joshua tree which is an amazing place and you can literally park a car open the trunk and grab your stuff and you're at the bottom of a rock climb which is kind of like what you're uh, talking about yeah. where it's like you get dropped off yeah, at the front yeah. door and then there's these right, other right. places that you have to go find and you've got to get there and it's a hike it's an approach is what it's called in in rock climbing and right and those you know it's more of an adventure to get there and what was interesting is is, is that you say that is because i was actually thinking about you yesterday when we were on a hike because it was in the I won't say it's the foothills, but it is like in the the Maryland section of the Appalachian Mountains. We went to this place called Pawpaw Tunnel, um, which is near it's carved through a mountain overlooking Pawpaw, West Virginia, right on the it's on the CNO Canal right next to the Potomac River. And you know, I'm looking at all of these like sheer face rock bases and all this other stuff. And I'm thinking, I know some dude who would just look <laughs> at these rocks and say, I want to climb them. I-, I wanted to walk around them or kind of walk up them, but I did- I never had it like stuck in my head. I want to climb that. <laughs> and for some <laughs> reason, it's just like, I know some dude who wants to just like scale right up the side of those. I'm just some dude to you. Yeah. Just some dude, me. <laughs> but so the the Glenstone Museum is eight point seven miles away from my house, which is fantastic for me when I can get tickets. What's it is a private collection, and prior to the pandemic, and and we'll see how it kind of like you know pans out afterwards. But prior to the pandemic, you can get um, tickets three months in advance. It's free, but. It's all based off of like, you know, luck of the draw. Well, not really luck of the draw. It's just, let's say that you wanted to go today. Three months ago, I'd have to get the tickets for that. On the first of that month at 10 a.m. is when it opens up. And a lot of people are like, oh, you're so lucky you get to go there all the time. It's like, I'm not really lucky. I do the same things you guys got to do, which is go onto their website, click visit the museum, go to the museum, and then hope that tickets are available for the amount of tickets that I want and for the days that I want them. And then if I wait, like just say a half an hour from 10 o'clock, uh, 45 minutes, I, I can almost guarantee you that I won't have tickets for that time. And then periodically you know, people will, you know, cancel their reservation or something like that. And there'll just be some random tickets. And so I'll, I'll like check the websites and pop up like yesterday or a couple days ago uh, was my 21st wedding anniversary. And the day prior, I went on the website. I'm like, oh, I know that there's, the grounds are open. And so I, I clicked on the website. I'm like, oh, great. 
fantastic. And so we got to actually on our um, anniversary basically walk the grounds, which kind of leads me into the conversation about the particular building. So when you get there, you drive up and, and from our house, it's, it's this, you know, nice, beautiful little drive. I mean, the interesting thing is, is that right outside of DC in the Maryland suburbs is um, Montgomery County and Montgomery County is both urban and densified. And as you get just a little bit further away, you almost like hit that 10 mile mark outside of DC, you start to get more rural and beautiful twisting roads, you know, um, nice little hills, beautiful farmlands and stuff like this. So it's just this like scenic drive just to get there. And then you get there and you come in and um, this particular case, uh, you just drive up and the the person, rather than you going into a building to like check in or something like that, they're, they're standing just before you pull in and off the road and they're standing there and they, you, know, you check in and say, you know, who you are and you know, what time your appointment is. And, and really from the parking lot all the way in, it's just design was thought about all the way through. With the way, you know, the the bosque of trees that, you know, help delineate the actual parking lot to the way that they have the lights for the parking lot laid out. I mean, it's just everything is just it is designed for an experience. And so you've got these nice little winding paths that you first go through the kind of like the information building and you start to understand the language of the buildings that you're going to see. Not built with the same material, but kind of rectangular buildings, lots of glass, lots of solid, you know, no windows. So it's this nice, low, beautiful interplay of solid and voids. And you go in there and and it's such a very minor kind of, let's call it gift shop, but it's just, you know, a, a couple of little books on it and, you know, maybe, you know, kind of like a, uh, a Glenstone, like ornament or something like that but it, it's it's so very minor it's it's not your typical enter through the gift shop or exit through the gift shop type gift shop it's so very minimal which is kind of like the pattern of this whole thing is it's very minimal so it kind of acts as your gateway and it's this nice little um, crushed gravel path and so you're essentially winding through this landscape you go across um, a little creek over this nicely done you know footbridge you go across this creek and you're just in this nice little winding path. And the thing about the path that's so deliberate is, you know, not only does it traverse handicap accessibly through the landscape, but it also helps kind of like frame different views as you're like slowly walking through the landscape. You start to see these pavilions, which were done by Pfeiffer. You start to see these beautiful white precast concrete pavilions slowly starting to reveal themselves through the landscape. And as you get closer and closer, you start to see that it's just a collection of boxes. And so there's no real windows. You you just see these kind of like cubes that are kind of like peppering the landscape. And now since it's spring, the landscape is completely covered with wildflowers. And so it's this just beautiful sea of yellow and green. And then just these little white cubes that slowly just kind of emerge from the landscape as you get closer and closer to it. And so the thing that I love about Glenstone, just the landscape experience of it is that I I've been there now every season of the year and it tends to change, you know, a very bright day 
it's these white glowing boxes in an overcast day or rainy day. Those boxes kind of, you know, absorb the water and they turn into kind of like a darker gray and they're shiny and, and shimmering. And it's just the character that changes over and over as you experiencing this, the, the place throughout the years is just incredible. And so before you go into the main gallery of the pavilions, uh, there's a couple of exterior spaces out there where there's some installations and it just, it's, it's just really kind of cool to be able to kind of like engage, you know, the art, um, in the landscape, you're kind of engaging. There's a couple of Richard Serra that just kind of like almost, it's, it's almost wayfinding throughout the landscape itself. It's just, it's just absolutely incredible. I mean, you're walking through, you know, wheat fields or like these rolling hills of, wildflowers and stuff and you're just peppered with like some absolutely amazing architecture absolutely amazing artwork and just birds chirping yeah (laughs) i think what's really interesting from the photos that i've seen which have just mainly come from you by the way i haven't really looked it up online because it's not like i'm going to be going there anytime soon and one thing that's really interesting to me just hearing you speak about it and like that procession and how the the buildings, the complex kind of begins to become revealed the closer you get to it. Like, it seems to me like you start off a little bit above it, right? And you might see the little boxes kind of poking out of the landscape. And the closer you get, the closer you get. Like, it's this slow procession. It's not a... Like there's so many buildings where all of a sudden you're you're boom you're on the doorstep and the scale is immense and and I can only imagine that like the way that you approach the Glenstone like you're talking about really helps people understand it architecturally. Oh yeah, yeah. Whereas when you're, I I, I kind of like into getting dropped off by the front door just like the Star Trek beam you in and all of a sudden like you didn't have context and. And so now you're there in the moment and you've got to figure it out. And it's a little bit overwhelming. Whereas this, because of the time it takes to get there and the the pathway and the way that you start to come upon it slowly just allows you to understand it better. And I can imagine that that might be a better situation for people who aren't architects to kind of understand what's going on architecturally. Right. And so, you know, as you're approaching the building and as the building starts to reveal itself, like I said, it's these basically concrete cubes that are kind of peppering. They're called the pavilions, but they're these 11 rooms of art installations that it looks very daunting in a way from the exterior as you're approaching it. But because of the way that they're set in, in the, the hills kind of like roll into it. So it's carved into the, the rolling hills of the, of the landscape. They don't feel overwhelming. Yeah. I love that about it. I think that that the way that it, the the ground undulates and berms and the way that these are kind of nestled in like they're definitely not sitting on top. Yeah. So then when you go in there, then then you then it's the carving of the spaces. Um you know, they they kind of, you know, because it carves through the landscape, you know, now the the building itself actually carves out these spaces and starts to you know reveal kind of a a, a nice little hidden almost like sanctuary space on the interior. So all of these cubes and <laughs> this would be better as a video, uh, a video podcast at this particular second, cause I'm using my hands and I'm <laughs> like making little boxes and all this other stuff and showing well, everything. What I kind of think of when I, when I think about like, and I'm, I, I'm along with the audience here too. I'm not looking at it. So what I'm imagining right. is 
and and I've seen pictures of it, so I, I might have a little bit of an advantage here. But the when you talk about the way that it has created like space, <clears throat> which is kind of void, right, in between the buildings. To me, it's kind of like like these buildings were there, and the wind blew the dunes over many many years, mm. and the dunes have have built up against the buildings, but it's also created pockets of space that are outside between these buildings. And that's kind of the way that I think about it when, by the way, you're describing it. Right. So what's, what, what is interesting? And this is, this is the one thing that, you know, all architects and landscape architects and, and even owners kind of struggle with is that we have this vision of exactly what we want the finished product to look like. And we always know that at the end of construction, you know, we've just done our punch list and we handed over the keys and, you know, now it's time for occupancy that it never actually looks exactly like the vision that you want. Not because, you know, it was built wrong or anything like that. The architecture itself may look exactly like it, but the landscape hasn't matured and grown in. And, you know, it hasn't really gone through enough seasons to really kind of like get that, that mood and that feeling that you, that you were hoping for in that beautiful rendering that everybody's assuming, you know, from day one, it's going to look exactly like that. And since I've been going there now for the past year and a half or so, well, since October of, of 18, um, when it opened, when the pavilions opened, I, I'm starting to see that vision kind of mature and grow. And now we've gone through a couple of seasons and, and so everything's starting to fill in. And so you're starting to feel exactly what the intent was. And I noticed that, you know, these, these berms that the first time I went there, they were, you know, just planted with grass and all this other stuff. And, now the wildflowers have grown up along the the buildings and stuff, and so they've filled in. And so now, through you know, depend like I said, you know, depending on the time of year you go there, the landscape itself is treating the buildings differently in each experience in each time of the year that you go there. And so, like right now, it's basically crowned by mm. flowers, and then. You know, later on in the in the summertime, you know, when the flowers die off, you're going to, you know, have like the taller grasses grow in. And then these green grasses during the summertime turn orange. And I've got these great pictures of when they turned orange. And so now you have these almost like gray cubes because you know, I went on a uh, kind of a rainy overcast day. And so they're reflecting the environment around them. And so they're kind of these gray cubes with this orange grass crown around them and it just watching the the evolution of this now i would like to say that they thought about everything and that all of these different things are very intentional consequences but i think in a way just because of the very nature of nature they probably are getting even more than they expected out of the interplay between the building and nature but so then you go inside the building and, you know, it's a very minimalist building. It's concrete floors, uh, concrete walls. You know, you, you darted with a few little pieces of, of wood, whether they're the handrails or, or maybe a, you know, like a carved out door or something like that. But for the most part, everything seems more set up so that you can see the art in a very clean, you know, almost like a clean room environment where it's about the art, not about the building. But the building is so simply done in the beautiful details between like say the way that there's a, a simple little metal reveal between the precast concrete as you transition through a threshold to the 
you know, the jib board that makes up the walls of the gallery, but those walls are floating. They don't uh, make contact to the ground. They sit off of the wall with just this really thin reveal line. Most of the gallery spaces, though they do have artificial light, are all lit by natural light through a, a skylight. And so you can sit in a gallery and, you know, say, you know, it's a cloudy day. And, you know, the good thing is, is that, you know, you get this nice, sunny, cloudy day. Um, like half of my photographs, you know, you've got these beautiful pillowy white clouds that, you know, come over. And, and so you can sit in this gallery and you can just watch. And, and to me, the power of the pieces within the gallery that are selected for each of the gallery spaces are very deliberate in the way that they respond to the changing of the light within the gallery space. Like there's this one big, huge open space within one large gallery space. And there's these Charles Ray installations that are in this room. And it's just this big white room with these few skylights in there. And as the sun passes, you know, overhead and the clouds are kind of like dancing, you know, in front of the, the sun, it just changes. And then I, I, then I even watched like on a really dark overcast day one time where, you know, then the um, artificial light turns on and the mood changes completely from a natural lit to a artificially lit gallery. And it just, it's just this weird little change. But one of the things that thinking project manager wise that I find most amazing about these, and if I can find some photographs, they'll be in our show notes is how they got away with hiding, essentially. Almost every one of their devices are hidden and very unapparent to the person passing by. And even architects who are trained to walk, you know, to like go through buildings and look, you know, for like all these little things. I mean, they were so well thought out. The um, Because all of the interior walls are, you know, these uh, cast in place concrete Sorry, not cast in place. Um, precast concrete blocks. Yeah, they're they're like uh, concrete sticks almost. They're like heavy timber, but made out of concrete. Yeah, we talked with the gate precast, who was the one who actually did the the building. And what's interesting about it is is that, in you know, if you look at some of the photographs, and we'll put a link to the Glenstone uh, Museum, but when you you know look at some of the interior spaces, you, you you'll see that there was varying colors throughout the the panels and it was very intentional. They, they actually cast or at least the lore that we were told by one of the docents that was there, which I kind of believed because he was a retired architect because he called us out almost immediately. Cause you know, the first time I went there, it was with a couple of architect buddies from the office and we're sitting there and we're staring, you know, like, Everybody else is staring at artwork. <laughs> You're looking at all the details. We're we're staring at like connection details of how the hell are they got this like this sheet of glass that creates both your you know it, it goes right up against a pond that's on the interior space. It extends up and then it goes past the invisible parapet to form a handrail. And you're just like how how are how did they get this detail to work this way? And so because we'd love to do that detail too. And so, I mean, and it just it's this big sheet of glass. It's seamless. It's just amazing. And you're just trying to figure out how the hell they're doing it. And the guy walks up to us and he's just like, 
architects, right? <laughs> and and we like turn around with this, you know, dumb smile on our face. We're like, how could you tell? He goes, yeah, because this is how I walk around looking at buildings too. He goes, and he introduced himself and he just recently retired from, I believe it was uh, Perkins Eastman, um, I believe, or, you know, it was one of the larger firms um, in DC. And um, he had been there for like, 30 years and retired. And so now what he does on his spare time is he's a docent at the Glenstone Museum and he's also works at the National Building Museum. So I was like, so you just can't get away from architecture. He goes, I don't really want to. I like it too much. <laughs> awesome. He's like, I get it. I get it. But I mean, you know, like the, the things that they got away with just hiding stuff. And I'm just like, how the hell do they do that? Because my AHJs will say that they want, you know, the fire extinguisher cabinet to be X, Y, and Z, and it needs to be white with the red letters and all this other stuff. And theirs is on the ground behind a stainless steel door that blends perfectly with the color of the concrete on both sides of it with just a simple little routed out shape of a, of an extinguisher doesn't say fire extinguisher on it. It doesn't do anything else. It just has a little picture of a fire extinguisher and that's where it's at. And, you know, so it's so amazing that they got away with some of these like little simple things that we take for granted the code default. We're like, this is, you know, this is what the code says. This is what the AHJ wants. And in knowing Montgomery County, as I do, they're sticklers for having things very, black and white, red. They don't look, they, you know, they, they very rarely ever accept any exceptions. It sounds, sounds very Apple-y. I, I remember seeing a picture of something similar at the, what the Steve Jobs theater on Apple's campus where, you know, it's all, everything's carved out of marble and it's, it's beautiful. It's Foster's design. It's very minimal, but it, it was very similar to what you're talking about. Where like the door to the fire extinguisher blended in with the wall, which was stone and it had a little routed out shape of a fire extinguisher <laughs> on it. And you're just like, how they pay did a do lot that? of attention, right? Like, you, you know, that there's code experts saying, nope, here's exactly what it needs to be. And they're willing to go to the mat with the, with the, <laughs> the building department yeah. over it. Yeah. You know, I mean, so the art itself, I love it all, but we're not here it, to talk you about know, they're, they're <laughs> in, in, I will, I will honestly tell you that it took me a few trips to really to ever to that notice <laughs> the art. I was like, oh yeah, 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 there's art here too. Because I was just so enamored with the surroundings, you know, the, the vessel that holds the artwork. It was literally like I would walk through a space, sit there, uh-huh, okay, yeah, I, artwork. Let me go to this window detailer or let me look at the vistas that this, this space creates. It's like the interface between those two things that is super interesting about that place, right? Like the, the, the choices that they've made in the detailing and the skin and the glass and the concrete and the way that like, I remember you sent a picture where like the way that the landscape was kind of had turned into from like solid grasses to an interweaving of pond and grasses and and then yes. I, I think yeah. that you could like be below that in the museum, if I remember correctly. Well, you, you can't, but that's where you first experience like windows. I mean, the windows are actually carved out to kind of like look inward at this beautiful little like scenic just pond space that that's the only place that you're allowed to take photographs. You're not allowed to take a large camera. I remember I had just gotten, you know, my brand new Fuji 
And I was just like, oh, the first thing, I can't wait to go and test this out of the Glenstone. I'm going to take some beautiful photographs. <laughs> nope. No, no, I'm not. Yeah. And why am I not? Because. Because um, rules. Well, I asked them, I'm like, so why don't you guys actually let people take photographs? I mean, this is a, a very photogenic building. And I mean, it's, it's absolutely beautiful. They're like, oh, we've got photographs on our website. And they were done by professional photographers. That that in this is what was the most offensive thing <laughs> to me. They almost turned me off on the building, but then the building itself won me over. Was she said, the pictures on our website are better than you can do. I'm like <laughs> what? I was like, are you? Yeah, I was like, wow. I'm like all right, all right. That's how it's going to be. I mean, you don't know me. <laughs> I was I was a little taken aback, but. But so, like, the only play, and of course, it took three, no, four times for me to visit the place before I was actually able to get out onto this. There's this, like, beautiful little, just like flat wooden deck that kind of like immerses into the, the pond that's got these beautiful lilies and, you know, grasses and all of this other stuff. And you can look through the windows and in certain gallery spaces, you can actually, you know, engage with the artwork. So it's, it's kind of like this positive negative effect that you keep going. So you come down the stairs and you get into this one gallery space. It's the very first gallery space that you engage with. And that's this first, like, you know, frameless glass, one big massive sheet of glass, no seams, just this beautiful, just like picture window framing out this, beautiful landscape with the buildings that kind of are framing it out. And there's a piece of artwork sitting right in the middle. And so if you kind of like walk around that piece of artwork and you engage the layering of the art and the building and the landscape, and then the buildings that kind of like terminate your view, it's just, it's fantastic. I mean, it's such a, a, a wonderful experience. And so it is probably one of the spaces that I've been to that is such a beautiful integration of art and architecture and nature and everything all rolled into one. And it's just, God, I mean, it is one of those things that I can take as many pictures as I legally allow to or illegally allow to, because I've also figured out, I know exactly. So what's interesting is like you, you can't see any of the cam the um, security cameras there, but there's security cameras everywhere. But you got to know what you're looking for. And there is a basically a little black dot sitting in one of the concrete panels. That's the uh, camera. And so a lot of times I'll say, all right, you know, if, if I'm with somebody, you know, my wife, my kids, you know, or friends in architecture, like, okay, move to your left. Okay. You, <laughs> okay. You stand right, stand right there. Don't move. And they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, and I, I move right in front of them. And so they're purposely blocking they're the camera and me. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm, pull, I'm pulling out my phone and I'm snapping off some pictures and I'm taking, you know, like a handful of interior shots. And then I delicately slide it back in. And then I was like, all right, now just like move to the left a little bit and then, you know, come here. And they're like, what the hell did you just do? Like, oh, I get it. You, I was, I was pulling inter <laughs> inter interference for you. And then there's other spaces where I know exactly where the camera is, and I hope that they're not listening yeah, to me. I'm sure they're not. We're not going to publish this so <laughs> that those people aren't like, all right, we're going to be looking for this guy. You know, every time we see them, we're going to just follow yeah. him, make uh, sure that he's totally not uh, 
taking pictures. Like, come on, guys, this is an absolutely beautiful building that people real. I mean, the experience. It's and that's the thing about it. It's you know we we talk about building, 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 building. Yeah, buildings are buildings. It's the experience. Yeah. And, and that, that's why I think that this has moved so high up on my list of, of beautiful spaces because it, it is about the full immersive experience. And I could go on and on and on and on and on about talking about the landscape and all of the different art pieces and things like that. But maybe to wrap it up a little bit, maybe I'll come back to it a little bit. And, but it's how it, let's just call it, it's, it's thoughtfully integrated into the landscape. And it, and it just kind of punctuates these these beautiful little moments and it it helps create you know yes there are some very deliberate moments that it visually creates but then as just somebody who does this for a living I look for those other moments those unintended moments that they may not have necessarily been thinking about that moment but that moment is as equally dramatic and effective as the moments that they intended to be there Maybe the way that two like pavilions kind of like overlap each other and, you know, they're thinking to themselves, well, you know, this is just this very compressed squeeze view. Well, that very compressed squeeze view, if you're standing in the right spot and you're looking straight across, you see people kind of engaging other artwork in another gallery kind of across the, you know, like many galleries away from you. And you just see that interplay of people in, in those intended spaces in a very unintended moment. And it just is so well done. I mean, I mean, if he literally decided he wanted to retire from architecture right now, which I don't think he does, but if he wanted to, he has quite the swan song to go out on because this was a fantastic building. And I can honestly say that, yeah, I've heard of Thomas Pfeiffer beforehand. I've never really experienced any of his buildings before. And now that I have experienced this building and seen just how thoughtfully detailed the entire building is and the way that it's, you know, engages the, um, the landscape and, um, PWP landscape architecture was the, the landscape architects and, and they need to be as celebrated as much as, as, uh, Pfeiffer architects and, you know, the way that they integrated the landscape, integrated these pieces in a, you know, like they did a little bit of terraforming, but I mean, just using the natural landscaping and just being able to like integrate the architecture and the art and the procession to get to that, you know, just, I mean, come <laughs> on, man, such a great That's job. Awesome. <laughs> I remember, I, I believe after you sent the first round of photos that you sent to me about this, uh, and I was, had to know more and started looking up the precast blocks that they used for all the exteriors and, you had sent some detailed shots as well. I remember reading something on Pfeiffer's website and I've not been able to find it since. So if anybody knows where this is, I would love to get the real, a real screenshot or a real quote of this, but it was something like our clients understand that great architecture takes time. And we yeah. fight against that all yeah. the time, right? That's what everybody's fighting against, oh, especially in public work. We've got these, these insane deadlines because the school's got to open for these, for this reason and, and that reason. And it's, and I'm not saying everything is a Glenstone Museum, but it is important to say that out loud. And and no project has ever suffered because of um, more time being spent on it. And I think that right. that's just kind of right. a as as far as their studio goes, it's a it's a nice thing to kind of 
put out there as an ethos of, and you can see the outcome of that in a project like the one you're talking about, where everything has been considered. There's not a bunch of crap on the wall detracting from the artwork because, you know, quote unquote, had to be there. They found ways to make it work and also not detract from what the story they're actually trying to tell there. And I think, you know, it's, it, it becomes apparent in so many ways beyond that, but that's a really simple one to point at and say, what's missing from the scene when it's not really missing? It's just well hidden and it's well considered so that it's not detracting from why people are actually there. Like that's something right. that we see all the time get in the way of, of the experience. So I didn't actually explain the precast. So the lore that I was told about the precast and, and to kind of like drive that point home about, you know, great architecture takes time is that these were poured. You know, if I said this, I'm saying it again, accidentally or on purpose or whatever. <laughs> it's worth repeating. It is that, so they were poured over four seasons very deliberately so that there was all done outside. And so that there was different environmental conditions for the curing process of each of these concrete planks that made up both the interior and exterior of this building. And so it almost takes on the characteristic of natural stone that in in fact, a lot of times, you know, if you're the, the further you are away from it, you, you're thinking it's, it's natural stone, but the closer you get to it, you obviously see it's precast, but because there are four different colors of this precast and they're, they were painstakingly organized and, and numbered and marked and everything else. And so, when we were talking to the gate concrete guys, um, because we were looking at using gate precast for um, something that we were working on, they talked about how very painstaking each of these were in the ones that they felt like were going to be potentially damaged in, uh, in transit or whatever they would make, you know, a couple of extras. But I mean, it was just the way that they put it all together and the way that everything was done you know, the detailing of this thing, it's, it's, it's amazing. It, it feels massive. It feels very heavy, but it also feels very delicate in, in it, it's, it's such a weird you know way to, to phrase this, but it feels very heavy in the landscape, but it also feels very delicate in the landscape. Yeah. It's it, that scale becomes apparent the closer you get to it. And I think what's so interesting about that building material that they basically designed a standard building material for themselves right what for all intents yes. and purposes it's one module i believe right yep. and so this this kind of let's just call it parking block size stick although it's probably a little thicker and a little taller right but like that to give people an idea yeah. it's i don't know what is it five feet long six feet long 10 inches in every other dimension something something like that yeah i think they said it is a eight by 12 by five foot six foot yeah so it, it's it is like this concrete french fry of, <laughs> of material that that then they just yeah. used as the module for the entire exterior skin of the building right so talking about block module interior they made their own exterior. right and and i think that that's just such yeah. an interesting approach to this and the, and then the thought that went into how are we going to take into consideration the variation in colors and um, textures and things and so by planning that out to happen over four seasons and then mixing that appropriately so that you get this <laughs> tapestry of even yeah. randomness throughout the the exterior facade it's just that's incredible and that takes so much time as we know 
And then the thought behind all of that, the coordination behind all of that, the, I mean, I, I could, I could honestly say that something like that probably, I mean, I haven't looked it up yet, but the pavilions themselves probably took several wow. years to complete. That's awesome. Well, I, I think it's a great building and a great thing to share. So definitely we'll have some photos and links in the show notes for that. And oh, and, appar- and apparently there's some artwork in there. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. So the building that I chose to talk about was a building that I visited almost three years ago. And it was on my Scandinavian xref trip and it's called xref because it's a pro it's like it's a competition actually within hmc the company that i work at where they have a travel fellowship and i happened to win it this time and my proposal was to go to scandinavia for um a couple of reasons one of those reasons is that finland is where my my mother's side of the family is from and i wanted to connect with that and I also wanted to kind of go back to my architectural roots, um, where I fell in love with Alvar Alto, which was not linked to my family's heritage in any way, but it was uh, a happy coincidence. And see his work, which is mainly concentrated around Helsinki, and and then you know the last thing was was just to kind of get out and do adventure. And what better place is there than than going to Finland and Sweden and Norway and Iceland and, you know, making a a thing out of it that I couldn't normally do by myself. And so that, you know, using the, the XREF competition as a, as a multiplier basically to get me to do the, to get, give me the ability to do this thing. And so the building that I wanted to talk about is the Oslo Opera House. And again, I, I think I talked about this in the last episode, but I didn't do a bunch of research before I went. It was more like, what are we going to do once we get there and ask the locals and experience the cities? And obviously there's there's things that I know about and you can't like just unknow things. But But when we got to Oslo, and this was towards the end of our trip, the Oslo Opera House just kind of floored me. It was one of those buildings when you experience it for the first time, and I hadn't spent any time looking this thing up beforehand. Just kind of taking it in as I stepped into it was one of those moments in, I think, that every architect has at some point or another, where the building sits you down and makes you say, whoa, like this is architecture. And so this truly is capital A architecture. And um, I don't know how the, the residents there feel about it, but if I had to guess, I think that they really love it because they inhabit this place. And I think that's one of the things that is so interesting about this building in particular is it's kind of different from the Glenstone where it's like there's no stopping you from taking photos of this place. There's no stopping you from walking on the roof of this building, and there's no stopping you from going into the lobby of this building. I later read that it was open 24 hours a day, seven days a week for free in the lobby. And as a gesture to the the people who live there, I, that's amazing. As a public building that takes maintenance, <laughs> right? That's a pretty amazing thing. And to be able to just go on a lunch break and sit on the roof of this building as it kind of juts out into the bay of the fjord that Oslo sits upon is an amazing architectural landscape that is free to everybody who who lives there. 
So, and, and obviously visitors. So I think that's, you know, th- to me, there's really three ways to kind of approach this building. And, you know, as Cormac, you kind of talked about that procession. Um, mm-hmm. This one can be kind of seen in a similar way where you, you see, you can see it from, it depends where you're coming from, but, but you're either coming from like the main train station and you see it kind of jutting out of the water um, and, and you really don't see it with, with much context of the built environment around it. You just kind of see it as almost this island in the bay and, and maybe more of like a floating piece of ice because it's, it's white right. stone, you know? So it, it really does feel like, and, and I, I've seen some pictures when there is ice in that area and it, you can't see <laughs> where the building ends and the ice begins. Like it, it just all feels like one big thing, which is kind of interesting. And, and so the way that this building kind of ramps out of the water, uh, they actually call that part of the building, the carpet, which I think is kind of interesting. So it's roof, but it's it's also not roof. Like it, it goes down into the water at like this very uh, slight angle. So you can actually like walk down it to the water and sit on it and put your toes in if you wanted to. Or you can continue to walk all the way up the carpet to the roof where you have this amazing overlook of what's going on below you. And it's really cool for people watching and just surveying like how the building interfaces with the city. And so what's to me this building is a great study in the building as a threshold because you just walk right onto it. And so you can look yeah. at it from afar and start to get an idea of this thing. And and what's interesting is it it doesn't just look like ice coming up out of the water. It also looks like a wave coming at you. And I later the wave being like this large glass volume that is the main lobby. And, and so it it picks up the colors of the water, you know, it's kind of, you know, glass is already kind of green and, you know, so, so it's definitely like, it feels like the face of a wave. And so from one angle, it looks like this building's coming at you, right? Where from another angle, it looks like it's coming up out of the water. So it's really interesting, the geometry that they've chosen to to make this out of. And and what's interesting also is that this is just one side of the building. The other side of the building is actually fairly simple and rectilinear. And that's kind of the business side of the building. And it's what they call the factory. So they've got these, these three main pieces that they're dealing with. They've got the carpet, they've got the factory, and they've got the what they call the wave wall so the wave wall is the glass the carpet is the stone and the factory is kind of this metallic cladded material uh, volumes in the back yeah i'm actually looking at a street view right now and and it, it seems very conventional albeit very well done you know and it's just it's simple it's understated because it is a dialogue in my view right now it's it's a dialogue with the rest of the city and the street, everything that's kind of going on on the street side of things, and it lets really the dr- drama happen on the water side. Yeah, yeah, the drama is definitely on the water side, and and building as performance, I think, is something that is worth talking about here, right? Because that's what it is. It's an opera house, right? It is a place where performance happens, and it's probably you know a key cultural piece of Oslo and the arts, right there, right? So. This building puts on a puts right. on a show, and I and I didn't get to experience it at night, but I could only imagine. You know, I 
I'm sure there's tons of photos out there of this glass wave wall being lit from within and some of the, you know, accessibility lighting happening on the the roof, the carpet as it goes up has got to be just something that's a little surreal to look at as this kind of beacon that anchors the bay. You know, it's it's got to be pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um so the first time that I experienced this building was actually just walking by from the other side of the bay. We had gone out and you know, we we looked at this building from afar. It wasn't until the next day where we actually approached the building and you kind of go across this little footbridge that links you from the main street to the opera house on the bay side and you are on the carpet immediately and you kind of have two choices. You can go into the building or you can go up and around the, you know, all over the building, which you don't get to say very often. <laughs> like <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. So that to me was like, oh, we're going up and over. We're going onto this building immediately. And then what I liked about that choice was that you get these little reveals as you're walking around of what's going on on the inside, but you don't immediately go inside. And I think, you know, as far as this building's purpose as as like this place for art to happen, but also just as a as a resource for people, that was a, the right choice because you really immediately got to see how people interact with this thing that is obviously an architectural intervention, but like they never had this, it's like 18,000 square meters of roof that you can inhabit on this building, which is incredible. That's, that's huge, right? I mean, that's an extension of the city that wasn't there. I don't think before. Um, so that is, you're kind of walking up this thing and you're seeing your reflection in the wave wall and you're looking in and you see these giant columns kind of holding up the the upper roof where the you know the upper part of the carpet it's it's weird because it's it looks so monumental it looks so carved out of one piece but it actually just has this thickness to it and it really does kind of feel like planes it doesn't feel like it's volumetric stone right it's it's kind of this undulating plane that the geometry allows to happen and it creates these voids that you know either let light in or let people in so when you're kind of walking up this thing and you're walking on marble and it's got these intricately planned and placed gutters and curbs to i'm assuming um you know direct water and ice and you know it snows here in the winter and i'm sure the roof probably isn't open at that point or maybe maybe if you take your skis up it's cool <laughs> but it's one of those places where it's like the i almost want to call it terraforming of that roof where where they've kind of undulated and curved right. and and guttered but none of it looks like that it just looks like these intentional shifts in the plane for some purpose. And you're not quite sure what, except to maybe trip you. Right. But they don't address that or really care about that. I think this is something we brought up in a previous episode where it's like, they're not trying to protect you from yourself in Europe, right? Like they're, they're not going to handrail the hell out of this thing, right? They're going to put the handrails at the edges, but they're built into the thickness of the carpet. So you can't even tell their handrails. Right. And I love that about it. I love that there's some personal responsibility in this. And and no, I don't think that the roof is like accessible accessible. It, like it's obviously sloped pretty steeply. Like it's a it's a bit of a hike. But there's other ways to get up there and to experience the top. Um so is is it totally successful in that way? Like I can I actually can't really imagine what it would be like any other way because talk about like the switchback of of ramping that would have to happen to get up this thing. It would be pretty crazy. The characteristics that it takes on throughout the day 
again, it's kind of this whole thinking about how it interplays with, you know, nature and everything and just the, the built environment. And, you know, it's, it's right at the edge of the water and stuff. And so there's this one image that I'm looking at where, you know, the, the sun's hitting it where, you know, the glass, you know, disappears and it, it basically becomes a big reflection. And that reflection is reflected into the water and it makes mm-hmm. the whole thing feel like an iceberg. And so it's just got this, this very kind of like different, you know, it's, it's, it's bright and it's just kind of like shiny and it totally feels icebergy. What I see, and I'm curious if, if you experienced it when you were there live was because of the way that you come into it across the footbridge, you're facing both the city and the building in one direction. And then, you know, mm-hmm. it's a series of basically ramp switchbacks and you just get these kind of like very curated views of the city as you're, you know, moving around till then you get to the very top, which is kind of like this perch that's looking back. Right. Is that kind of? No, it's it's kind of looking. What's interesting is like when I was up there, you're either looking across the bay at like the old fortress or you're looking down at all the people right, mm. that are kind of working their way up or just hanging right. out. And experiencing, you know, seeing their reflection in the wave wall. I think I look down more than anything from up there because it's it's just a great way to watch how people experience this place. And and that's what I felt myself doing more than anything. <laughs> so it is a bunch of interesting viewpoints that you don't normally get. Right, right. It was, it was just, you know, kind of amazing is, is that it is a fully inhabitable building. Yeah. You know, whereas, you know, we don't really, des- we design inhabitable, let's inhabit the interior. Right. You know, let's not inhabit, you know, let's, let's go walk on the roof. Right. Let's go walk on the walls. Let's, you know, run our hands across, you know, like the glass walls and look at our, you know, reflection and how everything is. I mean, it's just, it's pretty interesting to kind of, like, I mean, it was designed to be fully engageable. Yeah, and I mean, it's probably, I didn't say any of this, and I should have right in the beginning, but this is, uh, the architect is Snowheda, and I think that's how you say that, and this was a competition in 20 years ago, 2000, which is pretty incredible, and so obviously this is kind of a monumental type of a building, for sure, I mean, that's what I'm sure that the city wanted out of this, and between Snowheda and Arup, they were, they conceived of this structure that's just it's amazing. And I think, you know, 20 years in, uh, it's it's an amazing place. And I can only imagine what it's done for the city down there. It's, it's really cool. So, you know, as you kind of weave your way up to the top and then you kind of weave your way back down and it kind of creates this big loop. So you're, it's not like an up and back. It's more of an up and around the building. You, like I said, you kind of come down this long ramp back toward the water. And that's when you actually first kind of meet the side of the wave, this big glass, 15 meter tall at its tallest point curtain wall that reflects the the city. It reflects the exterior because, you know, it's a bright day. And so, you know, that's what glass does when it's bright outside, right? It's very reflective. And so you watch yourself walk down the side of the building. And that's, I thought that was pretty fun, right? Um, Obviously that's not something that you only experience at this building you can experience that anywhere that there's like a tall piece of glass but i think what's so interesting about it is the scale of it and the minimizing of the structure apparent structure that holds it up they use glass fin walls on the interior with that are stacked with laminate in between them right like 
glued lam- laminated glass that really stiffens it. And then there's just some kind of, you can see the columns from the outside, but they're these large kind of angled columns that hold up the upper part of the carpet and allow this curtain wall to really feel like it's just the envelope of the building and it's not structural, even though it's enormous. And I can imagine like just being on the bay and some of the winds that they probably experience throughout the winter has got to be some pretty, pretty big forces on that. But when you look inside, you get to start to see the organic wooden, you know, the actual cladding of the performance space. So there's like this void between the exterior and this interior kind of cocoon. And it is kind of conical in nature. I don't know the exact geometry, but it's kind of, it's, it's got to be like a, a few cones that have kind of been, you know, subtracted from each other and things like that. But it, it creates this really interesting play in materiality and form. So on the outside, it's harsh geometry that's it's very planar. And on the inside, it's this more organic in materiality and in shape inner sanctuary within in this out, outer shell. So I think that was that's pretty cool because it, you, you see that from the outside and you want to get in there and experience that. So learning a little bit more about that, it's, it's this oak that's been kind of soaked in ammonia to make it darker. And it's a bunch of sticks like vertically lined up to create pattern and to create variation and they're different depths. So when you get in there and you see the way that the light plays on it, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, it looks like, it almost looks like an instrument in some ways, Mm. Um, like, like you're inside or experiencing uh, like the inside of a violin kind of an idea, or I don't know, it's, it's also very massive. So it's kind of hard to, to put words to that, but it's pretty cool. It seems so very Nordic in a way, you know, when you think about like architecture of the, of the area, it's, you know, natural woods and things like that. Yeah, Very Scandinavian in that way. Yeah. So, so very Scandinavian. And it just feels like that, that, you know, it's got like the clean lines on the exterior and then, you know, you've got this warmth on the interior that just, it just seems so natural. I mean, I remember the first time I saw it and I wasn't quite enamored with it because I wasn't, I didn't fully understand it until I started to like really, and especially after hearing, you know, about your trip and then like really starting to like look more at it. And then it started to just like reveal itself as, you know, something that it isn't just about like, you know, the, the face value. Let's just take a look at, you know, these weird little undulating planes that dive into the water then it goes back to what we were talking about with Glenstone. It's this fully immersive experiential thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how it became something from like, ah, that's kind of weird to, oh, I get it. Yeah. And that seems to be so very, you know, this just seems like looking at both the interior and the exterior. I, I, I'm looking at the the interior kind of like, conical thing that you're talking about which i'm assuming makes up the outer shell of the opera space right yeah it feels so very scandinavian yeah i agree and and what's interesting to me is is how you eventually experience that in person for the first time so you looped all the way up the building and looped all the way back down and around and back toward where that bridge was and that's where the main entry to the building is because there's this lower kind of area of glass that allows you into the building. And so then you're walking under the roof that you had walked up to get to the top. 
And so there's this compression that happens. And then the space just explodes into this, you know, really tall lobby with lots of natural light fully lit from just that that wave wall glass. And that light is playing against that shell of the performance space, which is all natural oak wood. It's an amazing kind of canyon that you're in all of a sudden because you're you're not looking right out at the water because th- that roof is kind of obscuring the view. You don't actually see the water from the inside of the building at this point. And so you're in this canyon and on one side is marble on your right and on the left is wood. And the way that the light bounces around in there and plays off like this semi-reflective kind of marble flooring, you just get this really diffused, beautiful lighting. And I was there on a cloudy day, um, which I imagine a lot of the days are there. And it was in July and it was, but it was very diffused light. So it was soft. All the shadows were super soft and it was, it was really gorgeous and what's interesting is like like you're not going to we didn't get into the performance space it wasn't open that day there weren't tour tickets available or anything but it was it was almost like you didn't need to get into that that would be some another reason to go there for sure it's like so many buildings where it's like you can go back there and experience something completely different and i'm sure that that's what it would be but for the first time to really experience it I was already like overfull, you know, <laughs> it was like, you feel like architectural gluttony at this point where it's like, I, I don't know how much more I can take today. And uh, we've only got so many days in Oslo. There's so many other things to see. Uh, this is definitely one where my wife was kind of dragging me like, come on, come on, come on. We got it. We got other stuff. We got other stuff. Um, but just a couple more things before I, before we leave this building is if you keep going down under the carpet toward the bay. Um, it gets darker and darker and darker. And that's where they're like these tertiary spaces are, the restrooms. There's some storage and stuff like that. But the way that even the attention was paid to the cladding on those to kind of lead you to those, it's a very kind of computational geometric design that's very ice-like. I mean, it's backlit with green LEDs. Um, and then you get into the bathrooms. And I always feel like successful architecture you can tell by the attention they pay in the toilet rooms (laughs) yeah it's like you get in there and there are some photos online of this uh but they are gorgeous they are amazing and they're open to the public and all that stuff but like the way that they've got like the walls are made out of like burnished steel um and it's just this beautiful plaster job that's very dark and the lighting is very subtle in there um, and, and it just feels like it's a really cool toilet room, which is crazy, right? You, who talks about that? But I mean, just to tell you, like, that is the attention to detail that they paid. And they did all the interiors. Snowhead did all the interiors on this building. And so they're very architectural. I, I mean, they're they're probably not warm and inviting bathrooms, but they're really cool. Um, and, and I think that they kind of tell a different side of the story they are the underbelly of this building in that location and they're still really neat right i I, they didn't get forgotten they weren't just something that some intern had to do right it was definitely closely paid attention to you know the funny thing is is that you uh say that and you know one of the things that i was almost gonna harp on was the bathrooms at the glenstone that are probably of, of equal architectural language as the rest of the building. I mean, beautifully kind of like carved out 
floor to ceiling wood doors. Um, and it's just so well done, but yeah, it's just, you know, you can really tell when, you know, you're in the presence of like the Capillet architecture because they literally thought about everything and how everything was going to be experienced, whether it's, you know, the back of house stuff or front of house stuff, they look at every single detail. Yeah. Yeah. And I said this was a 20 year old thing, but really that was just the competition. It's, it was, I think opened in 2007 or 2008. So it's just about 12 years, let's call it, um, since it's actually been open and it's just an incredible place. The way that they've truly stitched this building into the fabric of the city, but created something different. And the way that it kind of links the water to the people and creates this resource, this 18,000 square meter carpet that is inhabitable on top of the building and the way that that kind of interfaces these three materials. I didn't talk about the metal panel, but that that's the exterior cladding for the the factory, quote unquote, factory part of the building, which is kind of the back of house and the way it's got these subtle kind of dimple patterns on it that play with the light in the sun on the exterior. It's super cool. Like they, there's just so many things you could talk about and keep talking about. And, and I, I could like you, you know, just keep going on and on, but it was a fantastic experience and just my experience. I'm sure other people have different experiences there, but wow, what, a, what an incredible place. But that's kind of what we're hoping for is that you know, everybody has their own special experience. You know, hopefully it's all positive, but I mean, you know, it's just everybody's going to be viewing it completely different. It's like how we look at art. Beauty's in the eye of the beholder and everybody's experience is different. But you're hoping for that positive experience, that kind of like, you know, thought provoking, long lasting kind of experience. And clearly it's definitely something that's had a long lasting effect on you, yeah. even though it's just been, I mean, it's just going to be something that's going to be stuck in your head, that experience for the rest of your life. Yeah. It was two hours, one day, like it was nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't wait to go back and visit it again. All right. So uh, now is the time when we talk about a building that we have been to together and you want to reveal what that is. Dun, dun, dun. The Porter Johnson. Nope. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> um, since we were just talking we about that in there together. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> The Barnes, the Barnes Museum in Philadelphia. Actually, it's the Barnes, the Barnes Foundation. So the Barnes uh, Foundation in Philadelphia is the second building of the Barnes Foundation. The original was, was in the suburbs just outside of Philadelphia and was basically in a, a large kind of neoclassical building um, in the suburbs and after and there's a, a great documentary that you can actually kind of find out how it ended up where it is now i believe it's the art of the steel yeah and uh the building that we now have in downtown philly um kind of along the benjamin franklin parkway kind of punctuated the the end near the um philadelphia museum of art it's uh so it was done by todd williams billy chen yep and it is another one of those that, to me, I mean, definitely capital A architecture. There's there's just these completely different moods about the building. And I think when we went there, we were probably a little taken aback by the, um, you know, whereas we're talking about the, the, the Glenstone was, you know, free to the public and, you know, the Oslo 
uh, opera house you know, being open to the public so that at least the public can experience the spaces and stuff. Now, maybe, you know, with the uh, Oslo opera, you know, obviously I have to buy tickets to go to that, but, you know, for the most part, the experience of the place is one where you can kind of go in and out of it and, and experience it as, as much as possible. And this one, you can experience the outside, but it's a kind of an expensive uh, museum, but it was most certainly worth the money. Mm. What was your, what's your first impressions as you? Yeah. So the, the first, we went there over two days also for, so similarly yeah. to the <laughs> yeah. Oslo opera house for me, it was like the first day was just, we went in that entry court and that was it. And the lighting was amazing. I have some photos. I'll put those in the show notes and it was toward the end of the day. I think they were just kind of wrapping up the day. So we didn't go in the first time we went there. And I had totally forgotten that we walked by the the other Barnes building at that one point. And shout out to John Cruz, who was kind of our tour guide when we were there. Oh, yeah. He nice. was, you know, he's a, an amazing photographer. And he's just a friend of ours from the show and gave us like the Philly tour because he lives there. And we we did walk by that old one. I, I totally forgotten about that. But the the new one, obviously, quite different. And and so the first day, you know, when you approach the building, you walk through the gates and you go into this courtyard where there's this reflecting pool that is surrounded by, you know, I would say medium sized trees. And at that time, I guess you know, it's probably around now uh, because we were there for the AIA convention. When was that? Twenty sixteen, I think. Um, yeah. The trees are just, it was a gorgeous time of year. There was clouds in the sky, beautiful blue skies, purple trees around a reflecting pool with this stone clad, mm. you know, whitish grayish building mass right next to that. And I was just kind of taken back by the serenity of this place and what you can't see the city from inside this entry courtyard. It's no, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's very introverted in that way but it, it also kind of i think prepares you to look at the art in a way that museums are that are well done are good at you know it, it's interesting that you say that because you, you know you you literally come off of the hustle and bustle of philly mm -hmm. and it's a little bit out of the way of downtown philly but it's, it's still within the city limits and and so, you know, and you're right off of the, the parkway and everything else. And so there's a lot of hustle and bustle of of the city. And then as you start to like, you know, get closer and closer into the courtyard spaces you're talking about, you may not realize it, but you're becoming, you know, more and more detached from that craziness. And it does become that, you know, very, as you say, serene kind of, it kind of calms you down. It transports you away. Mm -hmm. It lets you just kind of like relax a little bit and kind of almost like changes your mindset. You know, yeah. you, you, yep. it, it is like, all right, craziness is over. Let's just relax a little bit and let's go into this because it's this beautiful reflecting pond. And, you know, you just, you're looking at the way that the building and the landscape just kind of interact with this. And because it's this very captured courtyard space with, you know, a couple of hard walls and a trees and everything else that, definitely does transport you to a quieter, calmer place. Yeah. And, and I just kind of going around the exterior of the building, because I think we did that on the first day, like we went in that yeah, courtyard, but yeah. we walked around and I'm not sure my directions for the, for the area, but as you walk towards, you know, what I would consider 
plan west of the building, that's when you actually see this enormous cantilevered volume oh, yeah. that hangs yeah. out kind of over this other courtyard that you can only get to if you go in through the museum and because it's all elevated above the street level. And that just gets you like excited, right? What is up there? I want to go in there. And and it isn't until you actually get into that space that you really understand kind of the layout of the building, I think, because it's very simple. It's it's basically like a southern bar, a northern bar that kind of hooks around in an L shape on the east side to protect, you know, that entry side of the building. And then there's this open court in the middle with a giant roof over the top of it that kind of juts out and becomes that large cantilevered volume that I was just talking about. So you're kind of in this semi-open courtyard that is really just a nice outdoor space that they've created by by basically wrapping the building around it and really protecting yeah. it. Yeah. And uh, and in that space, I mean, what's funny is like like the Glenstone, you're not allowed to take pictures inside this. And... I found the interior to be. They won't stop me. They won't. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, it wasn't until you actually get into that courtyard space that you can actually see the dedication plaque. Where I think we've right. talked about this on the show years ago, like probably when we were there at the AIA show when we did a recording back then. But we talked about how the dedic you have the stainless steel dedication plaque on this kind of hearth-like object at the end of the courtyard. And it's a beautiful plaque. And on the plaque are some diagrams of the building, along with all of the names, right, of, of everybody who was involved. And there's a lot of names, right? I can only imagine what it takes to get a building like this built in a city like that. But the, the diagrams, I have a photo of it. I'll put it in the show notes into the gallery. But you can make out these, you know, they've got these three different diagrams of the shape of the building, you know, the partie, basically. And it's, it's like, wow. They explained it on the plaque. It's super cool. I love that about Billy Chen, Todd Williams, architects, or maybe the opposite, whatever. They're building, they do things like this on their buildings. There's these interesting little architectural diagrams or, you know, they like on the Neurosciences Institute in La Jolla, they, they cast them into the concrete. So there's these little bas-relief of diagrams of the building, which I thought was so cool. Like that, that to me again, is like one of these little details that most people don't notice, but makes it architectural. It's kind of like 99% Invisible, always read the plaque. Um, you know, it's one of their slogans <laughs> for that podcast. It That definitely applies on this building. So what's interesting about that is, so then you go into the building from this decompression chamber, right, right. in a way, from the exterior, and you're, you know, you're, you're now starting to get your kind of like mind right to go inside. And it doesn't really stop there. You know, you come, you come in and, um, yes, there's, you know, like the, your traditional ticket booths and things like that. You know, when you go in that traditional there, you know, it's very well done, but it's just very simple. So you go in there and it kind of brings you into this kind of like great hall where you can see the candle, you know, you're, you're now experiencing the cantilever from the interior. You're kind of under this suspended volume, right? Like it's, it's right, so exactly. cool. And it's, it's the link between these two 
more massive volumes, which are made out of stone. And it's very light feeling. And it's just hovering over you like a like an alien craft ready to take you home <laughs> kind of a feeling. <laughs> exactly. And, and it, you know, it feels, you know, depending on the time of the day you're in there and stuff, it, it, it could feel a little bit dark or, or very, very bright and, and light. And it's it's basically because it's it's all kind of like formed and lit by this big clear story kind of like solar light scoop that kind of brings um you know this natural light in there and so the material that's on the exterior is also brought into this space and so you you know you, you still have that connection between the interior and the exterior space but this it has no artwork in it you know it is kind of pre-function like, kind of it's 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 your it's totally your pre-function space and, and and it's meant to be that way you know for you know functions and everything else but it's still very modern, but then it starts to kind of like give a nod to how the spaces are arranged when you get into the space. Now, this is this is where I was both kind of at first shocked, I guess you could say, but then completely delighted by it once I it kind of like, oh, I get it. Yeah, totally. I, I understand exactly what they're doing. Yeah. So one of the things that, you know, because this art was moved from it's a neoclassical beginnings and you know, the, all of that stuff was taken out of that. They basically set up all of these exhibit halls exactly the way they were set up in the original building. And so you go into this very modern building on the outside, on the outside and you go into this kind of like big meeting hall in the middle that starts to break the scale down and then starts to somewhat did, you know, transform itself it's it's not like a complete like ooh, we're going to go from this uber modern to you know this this neoclassical building now it's it's a it's a slight change but then you go into the actual gallery spaces and you start to see how they were laid out when they were in the original building under the you know the the barnes's actual you know when it was actually arranged at the barnes house and in each of these and how the, the, the walls, you know, like how all the art was hung in that particular space. And so once you get into the, the gallery spaces and you're into these neoclassically arranged and neoclassically articulated um, spaces in the artwork is just, I still to this day cannot wrap my mind around that collection, how <laughs> that collection, how somebody can amass a collection of Cezanne and Monet and Manet and you name it. They were, they, they're all accounted for there in such great volume. It's hoarding at the, at the, at the highest level. Totally. And it's just, I think that both the, the experience of the space and the quality of the artwork I don't think that I was able to like close my jaw for the what two three hours we were in there. I didn't want to move from until I could like break the rules and get into each of the paintings. You know, it was just the the you know I'm like wait there's a and it's right next to in there. You know, it's just like you name it, it was there next to another one, and you're just everything is like some of the most famous paintings and from the most famous painters, you know, in the history yeah. of, of, of art yeah. all on these walls. And you're just like, how did these people amass this amount of artwork from all of these different, you know, people? And it's just, it was, it was overwhelming. 
I, I think I I was um, developing kind of I was just a uh, I was getting the vapors. <laughs> I, I, it's what's interesting about this is that it is a the building is an architectural smackdown first of all for architects especially oh, yeah. right oh, and then you get yeah. into the art and it's just <laughs> and then it's you've been you get smackdown. slapped in the in the face so many times that you yeah. become numb to it because there's so much like you're saying that the collection is yeah. so large and it is such such a example of art hoarding that you've ever seen at the at the highest level it's so expensive and, mm-hmm. and how do yes. they do that and there's so many questions so more questions than there are answers and and that's why everybody should watch that movie the art of the steel but um you you do become kind of numb to it because there's so many little rooms like you said that are kind of brought from the heritage of where this art started like it's it's home it has been brought here and even the detailing there we should bring up is oh, yeah. impeccable in the you, oh, they're they're co- basically copying this old thing but totally modernizing it and bringing it up to date and and the way the baseboards and the it it's gorgeous like you but you're looking at the art too like <laughs> there's so much like it's a continual numbing because there's so much coming at you in these spaces you you, you walk into these spaces and you see how it was arranged in the in the original but you know, and you're just like, oh, it's, you know, it's a tastefully done, beautiful space that happened to end up becoming an art gallery. Then you like start to like walk up to the actual work and, you know, you're looking at all of these different artists and you're just like, I- I've never seen, you know, I, you know, you've only learned about this in, in, you know, maybe art history class or something like that. And you've never really seen one before, but here's not one, not two, but like multitude yeah. of of that artist staring you back at, in the face. And you're just like, how? how, how? <laughs> this building is a study in being immersed in genius, right? It, at at oh, so yeah. many levels. Yeah. Yes. Totally. I mean, and it was just so, so this was the one where, you know, not only were, did you get, like, as you said, you know, the arch, you know, the architectural smackdown of just an absolutely beautifully ex, you know executed building that truly like you know again transports you completely out of your environment and fully immerses you into decompresses you it kind of dare i say cleanse you and then just throws you into art yeah it, and it's just <laughs> a, <laughs> that's a it's a good way to think about it because like if you're not if you don't go through that process, you probably can't handle it, right? Like at least they're right, trying exactly. to prepare you correctly so that you can yes. take it in. Uh, can we go back to that space for a minute? Because when you get through that entry portal and you get into kind of the great room, right? Because that's, to me, this the space in between the bars is the living room of the building. And then you've got all these little totally. bedrooms of yes. artwork kind of wrapping and, and you're kind of working your way up the floors and you... But the way that that volume, that that light scoop that you talked about is suspended in there, and it really is kind of this big collector of light and spilling it into this, it's hard to tell what it feels like. Does it feel indoor? Does it feel outdoor? Like, make no mistake, it's indoors, but it feels outdoors because of the way that the bars of the art collection portions of the building are clad in the same stone inside this space as they are on the outside of the space and then you get these little windows that look into those rooms from this great room 
And, yeah. and you've got to look at pictures of this. You've got to look in our gallery on the in the show notes uh, because you can start to see how that works. I think that that you know it's a way to extend the you know quote unquote skin of the building, the exterior of the building, but pull it inside this great room space and give the building more exterior than it actually has, but create a, a protected living room space. You know, this is on the East Coast. There is weather there. Um, you know, I think if you did this <laughs> yeah. building in California, you probably would, this could be an outdoor space in that we're, right, that we're talking about. Right. But on the East You're Coast, right. it cannot. Um, and, and the way that that light scoop allows daylight into this so that, you know, these these interior rooms get daylight without getting full-on exposure because the artwork can't handle that. It's brilliant. It's totally brilliant the way that they did this. And you've got to see a section drawing of this building to understand the geometry we're talking about because it's not straight up. It It is sculpted. And I think that that is something that everybody should look at to really help understand because it's this building is not simply explained in the plan, although that helps those diagrams I was talking about help a lot. When you look at this building in section... It's complicated, and it's complicated because of what needed to be done to get the right amount of daylight into the spaces so that it's not fully lit by synthetic lighting, right? It has to, right, it has right. to have a balance. They have to achieve this balance. And, and I felt like, you know, you're, you're right. It is going to be a different experience, different times of the day. But like that's that's what living is, right? It's it's not just this right. fully exactly. controlled environment all the time. Like so, like a performance building needs to be that. This is not one of those. This one, they wanted those rooms, the gallery spaces, to feel like rooms in a house, a very large house, <laughs> right? Yeah, lots of yeah. rooms. But they wanted it to feel like you're at home, and I felt like that was incredibly successful because of the way that they planned this building out and the way that it they extended the amount of quote-unquote exterior that was still protected here because of where the building is contextually weather-wise it's just brilliant it's it's unbelievably thoughtful like there's so and that's what i i see time and time again with their work in particular is how incredibly thoughtful it is so I, I, I'm so happy that this is the building we're talking about and that we got to experience it together because this is one of those ones where you're walking around with your jaw dropped. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, both, you know, as architect and artist, I mean, you just, the shame of it is, is that, you know, you and I, and our affinity for photography and, and, you know, at the time we, we had John there with us and, you know, he's a good, you know, brilliant photographer and it kind of pained me that I wasn't allowed to like, you know, snap off any pictures and, but, you know, there's always next time when I have you stand, you know, <laughs> be in the front screener. of the, <laughs> be the screener for me and vice versa. Well, um, before we, before we leave this, let, let's just finish off talking about the cladding of this building. It's panelized, but volumetric and oh, it's, yeah. it's yeah. marble. So, so again, like people, you got to go to the, the show notes and look at the photos and really like zoom in because the way that they've held these panels away from each other and the way that they float is mm. amazing. It's, it's, and I think, you know, there's probably uh, most people don't pay attention to this, right? This is totally the architect in us coming out 
and saying, but <laughs> but does it float, right? And, and the answer is yes, in this case. Those panels float, and they are heavy stone panels. And I also, you see a very similar notion on the the neurosciences building that I visited in La Jolla here on the, on the West coast where it's a, it's a playfulness of physics, right? It's, it's like, yeah, these things are really freaking big and heavy and solid and they float and they, we hold them apart from each other and just kind of the detailing and the structure that goes into making that happen or allowing that to happen has got to be an incredible effort. And it's so neat to see it because it really does help break down the scale. It almost looks like those could be the walls from the inside. Tell you know because the inside is so compartmentalized and broken up into small spaces, telegraphing to the exterior, so that it starts to reveal the scale of what's going on on the inside, and trying to build a bridge between that and the big scale of these bars on the outside of the building. Yeah, yeah. It- you know, and because it, yeah, I, I can't even, I can just say, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is one of those, one of those things where you're just trying to figure it out a lot, right? Like you look at it and you're, and you just, how did they, what? and, and I, I would imagine that this one's very much like the Glenstone in that way, where you look at the massiveness of, and the, the weight of the skin of the building, but the way that it's so successfully broken down and yeah turned into something i don't know like more elegant is is done in such a such an interesting and beautiful way it, you want to touch it like you just want to reach out and touch it and and right. not too many buildings encourage that like this does you know and the great thing about like that also is you know just the arrangement of like you were saying you know the textures the colors you know, the, the materiality just, it feels like a big, massive building, but it's warm enough to not feel so heavy though. Yeah. Yeah. In that, you know, because these panels are kind of broke apart and it's sort of in an irregular pattern, the way that they're, they're broken apart where it's, yeah, for sure. It's not predictable. And then let me just say that like the, the way that the light during like golden hour hits this thing and it just has this dancing shadows across the the face of this building because of the way that one panel is sitting out a little bit higher than the other panel and then the gap you know the the reveal between them is a little bit wider and so there's just this dancing language of shadow and you know transformation of color as it moves throughout the day that makes the building as big as it is not feel that way yeah it totally brings depth to an otherwise monumental block of a right of a exactly mass and the reveal is wide on the vertical reveals are like yeah. i don't know six inches maybe and there well, but it I looks mean, like zinc behind there or something and then yeah. there's horizontal reveals that are maybe an inch and a half so like the interplay of the way that these things kind of stack and stagger is really interesting and then it's further broken down by the size of the stone panels within the larger panel structure so it it's like it's a study in scale and proportion and massing like, there's so many things that you can you can really break down uh, as you get into this building farther and farther it would be something worth seeing several times and just studying the hell out of a piece of it every time you go right right well, I, man, I feel like we've exhausted this for, for this episode, but uh, super fun talking about this stuff with you. 
Oh, absolutely. I, it, yeah. This is what that this was fun. This is why we do what we do, right? Exactly. <laughs> this is it. You know, because not only do we do it, but we also appreciate it. Yeah, hopefully some of that comes across to the to the listeners out there. So let us know what you guys think about uh, these buildings or any other buildings that you can experience right now during the the pandemic time. So that that's really been our goal with this these two episodes was to to experience architecture when we can't, and we felt like we needed a, a break from the day to day, and we needed to go back and revisit some of these things. And it's just been fantastic to talk about those with you. So it's been really fun. And I'd be interested to hear what other people suggest we put on our uh, architectural bucket list. That would be, that's a great idea because it's like an endless list, right? But, uh, but what, how do we prioritize this list? Help us people, help us listeners prioritize the architectural bucket list. That would be cool. All right. Well, until next time. Yeah. Thanks for, uh, coming on this little journey with us yeah definitely that was fun all right that might be all for this episode but maybe listen to the end just in case this show is part of the gable media podcast network see all the shows at gablemedia.com that's g-a-b-l-m-e-d-i-a.com you can help support what we're doing here by leaving a five-star review on apple Podcasts to help get the word out and don't forget to share it with your friends We'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at arcaspeakpodcast.com, where you can find our entire catalog of shows. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. This is what you get. This is what you get. This is a schedule. This is a set. It's unpredictable, lest you forget. If you blow, you can bet. I know, I know, I know. This is what you get. This is a schedule. This is a set. It's unpredictable, lest you forget. If you blow, you can bet I know, I know, I know
Bet I'm 